Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Ohio listeners, this is Season 4, Episode 39, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name, again, is Rick. I'm author of The God Who Fights For You, just released a few months ago, Spiritual Grit, book about finding the strength you need when you most need it, and it's not where you think it is. That book is Spiritual Grit. That was released last year, along with two companion devotions, one for adults, one for teenagers. And I'm editor, of course, of the Jesus-Centered Bible, beloved by many who are listening right now as a unique Bible with unique features that draw you to Jesus no matter where you're reading, and the the Jesus-Centered Life, which is the sort of the, I've called it the birth mother of this podcast. It's a kind of a, I had one of our teenagers in our small group the other night after it was over. She's relatively new, coming for a couple of months. She heard mention that I was an author, and she wanted to see if she could find one of my books and read it. And she, you know, I always say, why don't you just let me give you one? So I took her into my office and showed her uh, the last, you know, 10 years worth of (laughs) books that I've written and just asked her, which one would you like? And uh, when I was explaining the books, I, when I got to the Jesus-Centered Life, I said, that's kind of the foundation of the pyramid here, as far as everything I'm about and everything that I do is sort of captured inside this one book. It's just the foundation for everything that I'm about. And uh, that book, the last part of it, um, is called The Beeline Practices, like the last two-thirds of it. And that is the series we're in the middle of right now on the Pain Ridiculous podcast here. The beeline practices are, they're not how-tos, they're not tips, they're not, um, it's not about trying harder to get better, they're just ways of living, ways of leaning in life that draw you closer and closer into Jesus's orbit, and when you get caught in his orbit, then in some respects you can't get out again. (laughs) Once you get so close to him that you're caught in his orbit, you're so captured by him that no matter what happens, it seems impossible to leave his orbit. And that's the idea here, is the more of these beeline practices that we embrace and begin to live out like riding a bike, we don't even think about them anymore, the more closely we orbit Jesus and the more our life is transformed. That's the, that's the basic idea. So these uh, beeline practices, we're going to uh, take them on one at a time until we're um, at the end, and that will at least take us through the end of the year. So the word beeline, uh, if you're listening for the first time, uh, comes from the great Victorian preacher C.H. Spurgeon, who used that word to describe both his life philosophy and the way that he prepared his sermons. What it means is that no matter where you are, no matter where where you start, no matter what you're talking about, you can find your way to Jesus if you just pay attention to the connecting roads. He, He compared it to Jesus being London in England, and you can start out in any little village or hamlet in all of England and follow follow a dirt road onto a paved road, and eventually you'll end up in, Lon- in London if, you want, if that's where you want to go. And so that's the way he lived his life, and that's the way he preached every one of his thousands of sermons. No matter where they started from, they always found their way to Jesus, and he called that beelining. So that's what these practices are. And today we're going to explore and dive into and discover the beeline practice of remembering, 
not imagining. I know it sounds funny out of context, remembering, not imagining, but here's a story that'll illustrate what this means, and it's taken directly from the Jesus-centered life. It's a story about Vince Lombardi that I just love. So here it is right out of the book. So Vince Lombardi was the greatest football coach of all time. His early NFL Green Bay Packer teams are legendary. He produced five NFL championships in seven years and coached 11 Hall of Fame players. The NFL championship trophy is even today named after him. He's renowned for his demanding style of leadership, his insistence on perfection, and his passion for his players. That's why after one forgettable practice that was marred by drop passes and forgotten assignments, Lombardi showed up at that evening's team meeting in a foul mood. First, he railed on his players, insisting they had a lot to learn. And then, very dramatically, he thrust a football high above his head and he bellowed, We're starting at the beginning, gentlemen. This is a football. So snarky, bad boy, tight end Max McGee interrupted Lombardi to ask, Coach, can you not go so fast? I love that funny story. But what he's trying to, what he was trying to emphasize to his players is we have to remember what football is all about. In fact, uh, he not only did this whole dramatic thrusting the football above his head, but one of his um, how to play football teaching videos starts out with him walking the length and width of the football field to remind players of exactly how big the field is. <laughs> it's so funny. It looks so odd. And maybe he'd be seen as crazy if he hadn't won five world championships in seven years. This this philosophy that he had of going back to remember what this is really all about um, had a powerful impact on his team. They were always aware of how to play the game and how to play it the right way. So it also taps into something that's notoriously true about us as human beings. We are forgetters. We drift away from Jesus. That's, that, that's how C.S. Lewis described how people actually leave the church or leave the faith. He said one time that uh, it doesn't happen how you think it happens, where somebody is argued out of their belief, that it actually just happens because people just sort of drift away, and they drift away because they forget the heart of Jesus. They forget who he really is. So this whole idea of orbiting closely around Jesus is crucial if you don't want to drift away. And remembering who he is, who he really is, is the key to that. That's why, for instance, world-class football players still today need to be reminded of basic football uh, strategy and basic football truths. So when the Apostle Paul declared to the church at Corinth in his uh, second letter to the believers at Corinth, here's what he declared, for I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was also, if you can picture this just metaphorically, raising a football above his head and saying, gentlemen, this is a football. He's trying to make his point to the Corinthian believers that this is what it really comes down to, is determining to know nothing but Jesus. That's where everything flows out of. So why would we need to, though, remember what seems impossible to forget as believers, right? It's all about Jesus. So why do we have to remember that? In fact, when I do my, I, I do a training called Jesus-Centered Ministry, it's eight hours of training, usually over the course of two days. And the common sort of question that is raised right at the beginning of that training is this sort of confusion <laughs> sometimes that people have, like almost like they're confused why they're there, because they're going to Jesus-Centered Ministry training when ministry really is all about Jesus, isn't it? And the 
common progression that happens, I've been doing this for almost 15 years now, the common progression that happens through those eight hours is that people who walk in the door with this assumption that they pretty much have Jesus dialed in already, and maybe I can pick up something here or there in this training, almost universally, those people leave that eight-hour training saying something like, I don't think I ever knew Jesus before. And the reason they say that is simply because I do what Lombardi did. I raise a football above my head, and I say, gentlemen, this is a football. And what I do is I raise Jesus up, and we slow down, pay attention to him, remember who he really is, and their lives are transformed when that happens. So in the United States right now, you would think that remembering is not our issue, because in a recent Barna survey, the researchers discovered that uh, 92% of all Americans believe that Jesus was a real person. So almost all Americans believe that Jesus was physically a real person, a historical person, but only just over half of them actually believe he's who he says he is, that he's the Son of God. So they believe he's a real person, they have positive feelings about Jesus almost universally, but only half believe that he was actually telling the truth when he said he's the Son of God. So you, you could say that almost half of the, of the country believes Jesus was a real person, but they also believe he was a notorious liar, that he was delusional or insane or something, because his central claim over and over again is that he's the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, and yet over half the people who believe he was really a, a real person say, nope, he wasn't that. <laughs> What that tells you is they haven't slowed down to remember who he really is or to discover who he is in the first place. Also, this is interesting. This always just staggers me. Half of Americans, 52%, believe that Jesus committed sins while he was on earth. Half of them. And that's because they think that, like everyone else who does wrong things, and Jesus was a a human being who lived and a historical figure, he must have done wrong things too. By the way, these stats get worse and worse the younger the person is who's responding to the question. So older people are more convinced that Jesus is who he says he is and that he didn't sin on earth. But as you get younger and younger, uh, fewer and fewer people believe those same things. So the truth is our outward face says, yeah, we remember Jesus, we know who he is, Uh, yeah, of course we know him. And yet then our other answers to questions show that they bear little connection to the Jesus of the Bible. And we have not worked out how we can believe two, two things that are in opposition to each other, that Jesus was a great teacher and an and, uh, incredible person and honest in every way, and yet the central claim of his life, he was lying about. It wasn't really true, or he must have been insane to believe it in the first place. So um, about a decade ago or so, um, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, it's one of these tipping point projects that I did. I decided, I, I saw that these books that were really popular at the time called On a Single Day. So they, they were projects where photographers took pictures of something on the same day at the same time. And, and you got to see kind of a snapshot, literally, of what was going on at the same time around the world. And these books were quite popular back then. I had this idea, hey, what if we got a camera crew in five or six major cities around the United States, and on the same day, simply ask them to stop young adults and ask them a simple question, can you describe Jesus for me? So we did it. (laughs) We did this project, and I got the basic raw video footage back from all of these locations, 
and I just started looking through them to see if I could see some common threads in how people, how these young people, young adults, teenagers and young adults, describe Jesus. And there is immediately uh, a primary way of describing him just bubbled to the surface. Almost every person either said this as their first response to that question, or it was embedded in their description of him. And it's basically that Jesus is a nice guy. He's a very nice person. This is a universal description of him. And I discovered after the fact that this is also universal for all adults. If you ask adults to describe Jesus, one of the first things they'll say is, he's a really nice guy. So, of course, if you slow down and pay attention to the real Jesus as revealed in Scripture, you'd be hard-pressed to primarily describe him as a nice guy. Uh, he has so many tense, difficult, impolite encounters with people that that description just doesn't really capture his essence at all. So taken together, this whole thing, it's, it's sort of uh, a broad picture of forgetting, or maybe even never knowing in the first place. And this is really the fallacy, or you might call it the fatal flaw, of the What Would Jesus Do movement. How can you guess what Jesus would do if you don't remember who he really is or never knew him in the first place? How can you do that? It's like asking me what Kim Kardashian is doing today. How would I know? I don't really know her, and I don't remember what I have known about her, really. So my guess about what Kim Kardashian would be doing today would be completely off, just a, you know, a chucking a rock into the ocean, because I just don't know. Well, it's the same situation we're in in the United States. In, the, in Jesus-Centered Life, I tell the story, uh, another tipping point story in my life, when a church consultant came here to our group headquarters to take us through a two-hour sort of workshop on uh, the state of the church today and her suggestions as a consultant about what should happen to help the church start to grow again instead of decline. So this happened, uh, I don't know, five or six or seven years ago, and about an hour into her presentation, she was making lots of suggestions about, you know, things that could fix what was wrong with the church. So she used, I, I list this in the book, she, she used phrases like top-down versus bottom-up leadership in the church, and dictatorial versus participatory approach to leadership, and isolating versus connecting environments, and big box spaces versus intimate spaces, and she was talking really about, you know, kind of all of the environmental factors of church, and what you might call maybe the cultural environment or the business environment, quote-unquote, of the church, and how that needs to change. And in the middle of this, I, I kind of—something just kind of bubbled over in me, and I finally raised my hand, and um, I wanted to ask her a question. So my question was, I said, uh, everything you're talking about is very interesting but very horizontal to me, so where does the pursuit of Jesus fit into all of this? And she kind of looked at me for a second like, come on. <laughs> and her response was, yeah, of course we need to, you know, remember the basics of things, but I think we've pretty much got that a, a handle on that. What we don't have a handle on is the, all this other stuff I'm talking about. So she talked for a little bit more, and I did something embarrassing. I raised my hand again. <laughs> and I said, and she was very patient with me and, um, and very gracious to allow me to ask another question, because I basically said, 
You know, you said you think that we pretty much have Jesus already dialed in, and I think that's there's a lot of evidence to say that we don't, and that I think that's our primary mistake here, is that we have sort of moved off of Jesus because we don't believe there's anything left to learn about him. Yeah, 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 we get all of what he's about. We've heard these stories since we were kids, but... I said back to her, I think in the church they were, we're like a couple that's in a mid-marriage malaise. You know, they've been married for 30, 35 years. They know every little thing about each other. And I, I, I was uh, riding, I was in the mountains for three days earlier this week, um, working away toward trying to finish the daily devotional that, I'm, that I've been writing since the start of the year. I'm now into mid-October. <laughs> Um, in those daily devotionals, and it's due in about a month. So I needed another trip away for a concentrated three days of just writing. And um, I was sitting alone in this, um, uh, you know, kind of mountain hotel that had uh, like a little dining room. I was sitting alone in there except for one other couple one morning, and they were fit this, this, this description of a couple that had been married 35 or 40 years. And they were so familiar to me because they they were with each other, but they really weren't with each other. The guy had brought in his iPad and had set it up on the table. The woman went and got her newspaper. They got their food separately. They sat down together, but they didn't talk. There was no conversation between them. They were both in their own little world living together, living in their own little compartment together. It always is heartbreaking for me to see this when I see a couple who's been married for a long time acting this way. But essentially, they kind of are saying to each other, been there, done that with you. There's no more wonder left. I've uncovered every rock <laughs> in your life, and there's no more surprises to discover. Uh, I got you pretty much dialed in, and that's when the relationship just sort of descends into a malaise. And so I said back to this woman, this church consultant, I said to her, um, I think that's where the church is at. We think We've discovered everything there is to discover about him, and we haven't actually even scratched the surface of Jesus yet. So I finished my little diatribe, and she said, let's take a break, and a bunch of people just sort of immediately gathered around me. I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, are are they going to be angry that I sort of took focus off of the person we all came there to hear, this church consultant? Why did I feel like it was okay for me to spout like I did? I thought that's what they were going to say. Instead... They had these excited faces and these eyes that were bright, and they were all just simply wanting to say, me too, me too. I believe everything you just said, that we haven't scratched the surface of Jesus. All of us are hungry, hungry, hungry for Jesus, that that's the thing that we're really after. They had been, you know, uh, consuming the same thing I had for an hour in that, in that workshop, and they were equally hungry and thirsty for what they weren't getting in that moment. So so what do we do? Um, how do we not end up like that couple I just described um, with Jesus? Well, I think uh, the cure for the drift is remembering to taste and see Jesus for real. Remembering to remember to remember to taste and see Jesus for real. So what does that really look like? Well, um, I thought it'd be interesting to just pop around to four different places in in the Gospels and take a look at a Jesus we think we know and slow down long enough to realize he's not the Jesus we think we know in these four stories. 
And this is a sort of a mindset. That's why this is a beeline practice. The mindset is, uh, this is going to sound funny, but the mindset is, I'm going to assume when I enter into this that I don't really understand Jesus the way I think I do. I'm going to change the way I approach these stories about him and assume that I don't know anything about him, and I'm going to come to these stories asking Jesus to teach me about him no matter where that leads to. Meaning, if he, if what I encounter in the words he says and the actions that he carries out, if I encounter a Jesus that is very different from who I've already sort of dialed in or assumed that he is, I'm going to let him change my opinion of him. I'm going to let him change my description of him. I'll let him teach me instead of me teaching him, is another way of saying it. It's, it's flipping flipping the narrative. So in Matthew 23, in my Jesus-centered Bible, that entire chapter has a heading over it, uh, a very cheery heading called, Jesus Criticizes the Religious Leaders. <laughs> and he spends, uh, let's see, almost the entire chapter from verses 1 through 36 just hammering the Pharisees. A, a few little highlights from here. He describes them as people who don't practice what they teach, that they crush people with unbearable religious demands, that everything they do is for show, and they wear these phylacteries on their arms so that everyone knows what a holy, prayerful person they are. They wear robes with these extra-long tassels to really show off how spiritual they are. They don't really care about people. They're, they're fine if people go to hell. They're, they're, they're fine with that, uh, and they're not going to lift a finger to, to help them. Um, he calls them blind. Um, he, he said they're, they're fools. Um, he calls them hypocrites. Um, he says they ignore the important things, and they pay too much attention to things that don't matter. Um, he says they care more about the outside, uh, their perception, than what is true inside. <clears throat> he calls them whitewashed tombs. <laughs> he goes on and on and on. And so who is the Jesus <clears throat> that we think we know here? in Matthew 23, when he's just hammering over and over. And by the way, just reading Matthew 23 alone, you'd have to say, well, Jesus isn't such a nice guy. <laughs> I mean, he, uh, I always say that uh, Jesus is always kind, but only sporadically nice. Kindness doesn't always mean niceness, and Jesus is perpetually kind. Even now, in Matthew 23, he is being kind to these Pharisees, and I'll, I'll tell you why I think that is in just a second. But typically what we think about here is that Jesus has just simply had enough with these Pharisees. He's just sort of boiling over with anger and indignation at them. <clears throat> he can't take it anymore. He's just so tired of their hypocritical religiosity that he just goes off on them, almost loses his temper. Um, but I think the Jesus, to, to remember Jesus in this moment, and to wipe out our preconceptions and assumptions about him, we have to slow down and think about what he's really doing in their lives. So the other night in our group, <clears throat> we were exploring the difference between having a full cup and an empty cup, because one of our primary questions uh, um, as human beings is, am I enough? Do I have what it takes in life? And one of the primary lies that we believe about ourselves is that we're not enough and we'll, we'll never be enough. So we were pursuing this question uh, with about 20 young people the other night, and I, I 
used the metaphor of a full cup of water versus an empty cup of water. So if you're a full cu- if you're if you're a full cup person, it means that you pretty much feel like you got everything dialed in yourself, that that um, you have everything you need, and that um, when other people encounter you, they're impressed with what you have. Well, it's a pretty good description of how the Pharisees thought of themselves. If you're an empty cup person, you're perpetually aware that you have nothing, and you're always worried and, and concerned that um, you'll never have enough to to meet the needs of life, and maybe you'll never have enough to attract a spouse in the future, or to find the career that you really want, um, or to or to experience the kind of success that you wish you could have. You're just never going to have enough. And there, and the people that Jesus encountered in the Gospels. You can almost split them into these two camps. People, some people he encountered were full cup people, and other people he encountered were empty cup people. So in our pursuit um, that night, half of the uh, small groups that I created, their, their task was to um, come up with as many downsides to being a full cup person as they could. So I gave them three or four encounters Jesus had with full cup people, including this one in Matthew 23, and asked them, well, what are some of the downsides from th- for thinking that you have a full cup like the Pharisees did? That was their assignment. The other half of the groups, I gave them three or four stories of Jesus encountering people who were empty cup people, and I said, your mission is to come up with as many upsides to being an empty cup person as you can. The hope here is that as they discovered these things, then we came back together as two groups, and we started throwing up what they had uh, discovered, the downsides of full-cup people and the upsides of empty-cup people. We threw them up there on our whiteboard and started to slow down and pay attention to what this was telling us. What, what the group said that they were seeing in what Jesus was trying to point out is that the empty-cup people always became the people that Jesus invited to hang out with with him or follow him. The empty cup people are the ones that experienced the miracles. The empty cup people are the ones who experienced intimacy with him. The empty cup people um, always had an in with Jesus, whereas the full cup people, well, they, they got the not nice Jesus almost exclusively. And they, I listed a whole whiteboard of deficits of full cup people including if you think your cup is full, you'll never seek anything out to fill it. And somebody at the very end of this pursuit said something really profound. They said, um, what if when Jesus was uh, engaging full cup people like these Pharisees, that his intention was to poke a hole in their cup? Uh, I, I (laughs) I almost collapsed when they said this. I thought, this is so true. What if Jesus is trying to poke a hole in their cup? so that their full cup of water drains out, so that they experience what emptiness feels like, so that their thirst and hunger for him is, is rejuvenated, so their passion for him has a, has a chance. That because of their need, maybe, maybe they'll be drawn to him. You could say that Nicodemus is a good example of someone like this. Nicodemus is among these Pharisees that Jesus was hammering over and over again, and one night, he decides he wants to learn more about him. I think Nicodemus's cup got a hole poked in it by Jesus, and he started to feel the emptiness of his life, and something about the person of Jesus attracted him. So under cover of darkness, he went to go explore Jesus 
and about who he really is and what he was really about. And because Jesus poked a hole in his cup, Nicodemus sought out um, this the source of life and the, the food that will really fill us. So I think it's true, when we slow down and remember the real Jesus here, he's not just popping off on a bunch of hypocritical Pharisees. What he's actually doing is trying to offer them kindness by poking a hole in their full cup so that they'll experience the thirst they need to be driven to him, who is their source of life. They're going to die in their full cupness. Um, the, the self-satisfied, the self-righteous, they're going to die in that self-righteousness. And Jesus is fully compassionate toward those who are hypocritical. He knows their only way they will come to him and experience the life they need is to have their cup emptied. All right, next let's move to uh, Mark chapter 5, 21 through 34. This is the story, um, maybe it's, it's headed in your Bible, is the story of the woman that Jesus encounters who has the issue of blood, which is a polite way of saying she had a scary, permanent gynecological issue that she had been shamed by her whole life, because if you had this sort of problem and you're a woman at this time in history, you were supposed to be marginalized. You were, you were unclean. You, know, you weren't supposed to hang out with a person like this because it was a, a sign, a symbol of that there's some kind of judgment on you, and you, know, you were not supposed to be related to. And so she not only has this medical issue that is dangerous, but she also has a social crisis in her life because um, who will connect with her? So this happens in Mark chapter 5, and remember the, the uh, lead-in to this is a, uh, a Jewish leader has come to Jesus with, uh, with uh, a problem. His name is Jairus, and, he, and his problem is that his daughter's dying. I mean, she could die that day. So he's desperate to have Jesus come lay hands on her and heal her so that she'll stay alive. And so Jesus goes, goes with him, knowing that the little girl's dying right then, and that time is of the essence, and he's walking through a public square crowded with people, and this woman, who had been suffering for 12 years with this constant bleeding, um, uh, I'm just going to pick this up in verse 26, she had suffered a great deal from many doctors... And over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. So she also emptied all of her financial resources trying to get better. In fact, she'd gotten worse. She'd heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. So, so you know what happens then. Jesus realizes that power's gone out of him, and he asks, he turns around the crowd and he yells out, who touched my robe? His disciples are looking at him like, uh, Jesus, what a crazy question. They, they, they say to him, look at the crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept, uh, it says, but he kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, for your suffering is over. So remembering Jesus in this story means simply ask, answering the question his disciples raised, which is, hey, Jesus, why are you asking such a dumb question? 
there's people all around you touching you constantly. Why are you asking that question? That's the key to remembering Jesus, is asking why. Why would he do that? Why would he stop in the middle of the square and insist on outing this woman? Why wouldn't, in feeling the power go out of him, why wouldn't he just let her go? Why is it so important to figure out who touched him? It's almost like she had done something wrong, and he was trying to catch her doing something wrong, but that's not what he's doing. He wanted to catch her doing something good because, remember this, Jesus is as interested in our spiritual healing as he is in our physical healing, and he shows this over and over and over again when he's relating with people who are desperate for their physical healing, but sometimes he doesn't give them physical healing at the start. He says, your sins are forgiven first, because he's trying to heal their spiritual problem first. And then as almost like an afterthought, he will heal their physical problem. So here, the answer to his dumb question, who touched me, is really getting to the core of Jesus' heart. He cares that this woman has lived in shame her whole life, and he wants to release her from that captivity. He wants to out her in the public square so that she can say and he can affirm Um, you are healed of this now. And to prove to the crowd that this condition has now been taken away by one who affirms her person in public, who embraces her publicly, opening the door for this woman now to have relationships again with others. Um, He's trying to fix the bigger problem here. It's not that the bleeding isn't a problem, but uh, one thing we know for sure about Jesus is that he is interested primarily in healing the deepest hurts we have, not just the surface things that bother us or make life challenging. He wants something, uh, a healing that goes much deeper than that. Or what about the man by the pool of Bethesda? And that's in John chapter 5. So this, this is a guy who's been waiting for 40 years by the pool of Bethesda, and they have this belief, we're not sure if it's a myth or if this actually happens, it sounds like an urban myth, that uh, when the waters stir, it's actually an angel stirring them, and if you're the first one to get into the pool after the waters have been stirred, then you'll find healing. Sounds a lot like an urban myth to me. Uh, But this man has been, you know, living next to the pool of Bethesda for 40 years, hoping that he can find the healing he so desperately wants. Um, And basically what he's doing is he's waiting for something to happen to him. So when Jesus sees him and says, uh, what do you want? It seems like a ridiculous question, but what is Jesus really doing here? Um, He's not just healing this man who's been there paralyzed all this time, sick and unable to help himself. He's not just solving the man's uh, obvious problem. When he says, what do you want? He's trying to get at the man's mentality, which is, what I want is for uh, a miracle to drop out of heaven on me. I want something to happen to me that's good, because I can't get myself to the pool on my own. There's no way I can do that, so I'm just hoping that something miraculously just happens to me. But when Jesus says, what do you want? He's asking the man to put some skin in the game. He's asking the man to declare what he wants, to kind of put his oar in the water, and, and when the man does, when he says, here's what I want, Jesus says, well, pick up your mat and walk. And then the man has to pick up his mat and start walking when he hasn't done this in 40 years. He has to participate. 
Why? That's the, the question again to ask, is why is Jesus doing this? Well, it's because he wants a partnership with us. Remember, he doesn't want a master-slave relationship anymore. He wants an intimate friend-intimate friend relationship. He does not want a one-sided relationship. He wants us to put something into the pot, just like the widow did when she put her mite into the pot, and Jesus loved that so much because that little penny represented everything she had. Jesus, over and over again, is trying to say, look, I'm not going to do stuff for you all the time. I want to do stuff with you. I need your participation. And even if all you have is a little penny, I want you to throw it in the pot. And so when we slow down and pay attention, remember who he is, um, and maybe discover who he is for the first time, what we get is a Jesus who doesn't want a one-sided relationship. He wants a participatory relationship, and he repeats that pattern over and over and over again with others. So maybe the last thing we can circle back to is this whole idea that Jesus is primarily a nice guy. And uh, for many, um, they think of him as maybe the most polite person that's ever lived. But actually, the, for many people who've met him, who actually met him, he was the least polite person they had ever met. So many examples of being invited to parties and saying the wrong thing, or outing hypocrisy right in front of these people, or calling them names that made them so angry that they wanted to kill him, um, or even with his disciples saying, boy, you still don't get it even now? Do I still have to go over this one more time? Over and over again, he was an impolite person. <laughs> There's no other way to describe it. Um, so uh, I, in a couple episodes ago, I, I, I gave you a quote from Moby that I think uh, is good to go back to right here. He, uh, Moby, the, the one-time pop star who came to Christ in the middle of the, you know, the ascent of his career, um, he was relating to uh, a friend of his uh, talking about Jesus, but he had never actually read the Gospels. And his friend said to him, if you're going to talk about Jesus, you should probably read the Gospels. And Moby said, well, I did, and then I was converted. <laughs> so what he was really doing was he was replacing the assumptions he'd made about Jesus by remembering who he really is. And the act of remembering, again, is to go back to the Gospels and assume you know nothing, and that's what he did. So this idea that Jesus is the nicest person um, around is divorced from reality. Even on the level of, let's say you don't believe he's God, you still aren't allowed that description of him, that Jesus is the nicest person, um, because that's not uh, how the, the human record of him, that's, that's not the picture the human record of him gives us. It's, it's not the most polite person. And this nice guy trope is dangerous, actually. Um, in, my, in the book, I give the example of um, if you were walking down a dark alley in a bad part of town at the wrong time of night, and you saw some pretty dangerous, violent-looking people down there in the alley, and you know you had to walk past them to get to where you had to go, would you want your companion uh, who was walking with you to be Mr. Rogers? Would you want Mr. Rogers to try to sweet-talk these guys out of um, beating you up and maybe killing you? So we, the, the, the truth is, when we repeatedly describe Jesus as a nice, polite guy, it should be no surprise to us when people don't want to give their whole lives to him. We're asking people to trust their whole lives to a cardigan. Why would, we, why would anyone do that? 
it's dangerous to describe Jesus in ways that he is not. They, we need a full and raw description of who Jesus is, along with all of his ferocity, because his ferocity is what makes his tenderness so profound. He will fight like nobody else can fight, but he will also be tender in a way no one else can be tender. We need both of those things. So to, to sum up here, let's pursue a new acronym. Let's, in, let's replace WWJD with WDJD, which stands for What Did Jesus Do? Let's start there. I think it's arrogant otherwise. If we don't really know who he is, and we haven't slowed down to remember, if we haven't listened to uh, the message of the football above the head, gentlemen, this is, this is a football, then let's go back and do that. Um, let's follow the Lombardi effect <laughs> back to, what did Jesus do? Or you might even say, what did Jesus really do? Because we have a set of expectations of what we think he did that aren't true. So start there. What did Jesus what did Jesus do? Start there and watch what happens in your soul as as you do that. This slow drift away from his heart, this slow mid-marriage malaise will stop. And the embers that are still there in the fire of your passion for him, this will blow on them and a fire will start again. Yeah, if you have to, just simply tell yourself I'm starting over. And I'm thinking about Vince Lombardi holding that football above his head, saying, gentlemen, this is a football, and I'm going to treat Jesus that way. I'm going to relearn him from the beginning. I'm going to slow down and let him teach me who he is instead of bringing my assumptions and overburdening him with those. Plus, in order to be in a deep, intimate relationship with him, we have to have a more raw, real view of who he is. If we don't, we'll quickly lose interest in him. And like that church consultant, we'll end up focusing on what I call the cup holders of life. Um, they're, the, they're the things about that new car that you're wanting to buy that are nice, but have nothing to do with the real performance of the car, <laughs> the engine, uh, the transmission, nothing. Let's, let's first um, make sure that the engine in the car is there and that is Jesus. Let's explore that before we get too distracted about how many cup holders the car has. And there you have it. So thanks thanks for listening, gang. Remember, you can check out the Jesus-Centered Life and the Jesus-Centered Bible and links to this podcast, and that if, if you're hungering to draw near to Him, um, these are two resources that will be companions for you. They will help that to happen. They'll create a, an emotional, spiritual intellectual environment for that to grow. So check out the Jesus-Centered Life or the Jesus-Centered Bible. Um, to, to find it, you can just go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com. You'll be looking for Season 4, Episode 39, and you can find those links there. And um, next week, uh, I think the Beckinator will be back, so we'll, we'll uh, head into the next Beeline practice. Um, let's see what's... I, I never do this. I never tease what the next one is. Let's see what the next beeline practice is after this one. Noticing what Jesus did and didn't do. Noticing what Jesus did and didn't do. And that's one of my favorites because when you start to notice what Jesus didn't do, you really get to see parts of his heart you didn't know were there. So we'll see you again uh, next week. Remember, this is a, a podcast produced by Lifetree. You can subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.